We are going to be in John chapter 5 this morning. If you grabbed one of the guest Bibles, we're going to be on page 856. I'm going to actually read um, a good chunk of Scripture today, 18 verses, in fact, starting in verse 1 here in John chapter 5 as we continue our sermon series looking at the sign passages in the Gospel of John. So here we are, John chapter 5, verse 1. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city near the sheep gate was the pool of Bethesda with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, Would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Jesus told him, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, You can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. But he replied, The man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. Who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are well, so stop sinning, or something even worse may happen to you. Then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, My father is always working, and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. Now before we get too far into the passage, there may be a a few of you here this morning or tuning in online that are asking yourselves, one of two questions. The first question may be, why did Pastor Sean skip reading verse number four? And the rest of you, many of you who've just looked back down at your Bibles, are now probably asking, well, where is verse four? (laughs) Why is verse four not in my Bible? What is going on here? Well, this is an example of modern English translations basing their work off different Greek manuscripts than perhaps an older translation. And it's a long and complicated discussion And it's not one that I'm going to bore everybody with here this morning, but it is one that is worth stopping and addressing every now and then when we come across a passage that gives us the opportunity to do so. So ask yourself this this basic question. How did we get the Greek New Testament? How do do we get it? The, 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 The Testament, the writings that your English translation was based upon, how did we come about getting it? Well, Originally, we know the writers of the New Testament wrote their gospels or their epistles down and sent them to their churches. And and there at their churches, and over time, these original writings were then copied. And then the copies were copied, and those copies were copied. And over time, through all these copying, all this copying that was done, thousands upon thousands of copies, there were slight changes that got introduced into the text. Some of them intentionally, and some of them accidentally. 
And over the centuries, the biblical manuscripts began to be collected in in roughly five geographical regions. And each of those regions contained distinct variations of their version of the Greek New Testament from the others. And so there's a modern discipline of trying to determine which of all these variants represent the original autograph the best. And that discipline is called textual criticism. All right? And it's worth having at least a basic awareness of that process as a Christian. Now, in the case of verse 4, the overwhelming majority of biblical scholars today deem that verse to be an addition to what John wrote in his gospel. Therefore, it is not in your New Testament. In all likelihood, it was added at some point throughout history by a scribe who was looking at the text and felt that the reader needed a little bit of explanation for why this was happening in this text. Why were people going to this pool? Why were they waiting around to get in? Why was this man, you know, sick for 38 years, sitting around all this time trying to be the first to get into the water? And so it makes sense that someone in history decided they would add an extra little line of commentary to give an explanation of the local perspective on why people were there. What was the, the belief? What was the superstition? What was the, the, the thing that, that drew people there and had them ready to get into the water? And so if verse 4 was in your Bible, and those of you that have maybe a King James, you might see verse 4 there. Um, it does say that you know, the crowds of sick people were laying on the porches. Here's what it says. Waiting for a certain movement of the water, for an angel of the Lord came from time to time and stirred up the water. And the first person to step in after the water was stirred was healed of whatever disease he had. Okay, so... That's probably an accurate explanation of the beliefs of the people at that time, and it makes sense of why this is all happening here in the gospel. But we can't say that verse 4 was part of the original thing that John wrote, and that's why verse 4 is missing in your Bibles, okay? Now look, I don't want you to be alarmed by this discussion. It is a very, very small percentage of, of the Greek New Testament that is, that is in dispute. It's like three to five percent. The very vast majority of those minor differences are like the, of, a difference of a vowel or maybe a consonant that was the end of one word accidentally got put at the beginning of the next word. You know, cop, copy errors, copy mistakes. And none of the variations affect any of the major doctrines that you and I hold as Christians. And the short of it is this, your Bible can be trusted, You can trust your Bible, all right? But here's the thing. You can trust your Bible, but you cannot always trust the section headings in your Bible because those were definitely not in the original autographs. John was not penning his gospel and he stopped here at the beginning of verse 5 and says, oh, here's a section heading, Jesus heals a lame man. That, of course, is put in there by the translation teams that translated the version that you have. And sometimes those section headings, while meant to be helpful, can actually be a little unhelpful. And I have, happen to have an issue with the one here in the NLT. Jesus heals a lame man. Of course he heals a lame man. That's true. But oftentimes we hear lame man and we associate lameness with paralysis. And there's nothing in the text that says that he's a paralytic. We're told he's sick. We're told he needs help. That he lacks the strength or the speed to get to the waters first, but there's nothing that says he's a paralytic. I prefer instead the generic reading that you'll find in some of your Bibles that says something like the healing at Bethesda. Or even better, the the New Revised Standard Version says Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Now listen, if you want a section heading that really strikes at the heart of what the passage is about, that's, that's one right there. That's the issue here. It's not just that Jesus healed a lame man. We've seen Jesus heal. 
We know that his healing and his, his miracles and even the signs that he was performing garnered a certain degree of acclaim and even a, a bit of a following. Now, we noted last week that his following largely was superficial at this point. The people who were following him were probably following him for the wrong reasons. But of course, that doesn't stop Jesus from drawing near to people. It doesn't stop Jesus from ministering to their needs, even though their intentions aren't perfectly pure, that they're not centered on the right things. Jesus is still, you know, he's still ministering to people. We know from uh, just last week, we were talking about the, the royal official who came to Jesus just to have his, uh, Jesus do something for his son. Jesus still healed his son. He still cares about people's misery and their suffering. Jesus still meets people's needs despite some of their false or wrong intentions. I mean, that's the whole point of the incarnation, is it not? For him to step in the flesh into human suffering himself. To robe himself with the human condition. Yes, that he might heal it, but more importantly, so that he might make God known through it. It's the most beautiful aspect of the incarnation to me. Not just that he's redeeming all that he touches, and he is, but that he comes to us in our own language, in our own categories. We can understand God because God has become like us and made himself known as one of us. And never miss those two dimensions to the incarnation of Jesus. Yes, he comes to heal, but he comes that he might reveal. And the healing always points to the revealing. But the issue in this passage, going back to where I was a moment ago, is not just that Jesus heals. No, it is that he heals on the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath. That's the emphasis here. Whatever the sign is in this this now third sign of the Gospel of John, it's all wrapped up in that and that fact, that Jesus does this at a particular time, in a particular place, on a particular day. Now let's look at the sequence of events a little more closely here. We know the setting. It says afterward, there in verse 1, this is after the, where we were last week, where Jesus had passed through Samaria, back into the north. He's in, up in Galilee. Well now, after that, he, at some point later, he's back down in Jerusalem for an unspecified holy day. And we know that the last time Jesus was here, he didn't receive the greatest of welcomes, did he? His, his authority, he's, he cleansed the temple. He's now at odds with the Jewish leaders. They're questioning his authority. They're already, at some, they're already conspiring to kill him. We didn't know that until now, but now that we see this in this passage, we know that this, this conspiracy or this desire to get rid of him has already begun before this point in the time. And so he's been here before. He's not started off on the right foot with the Jewish leaders. And we know that whatever people who have followed him at this point, their following is very superficial, very shallow, very self-centered, and therefore they are not to be trusted. That's the last time he was here. But now that he's back, he finds his way to this pool of Bethesda where the blind and the sick and the lame have gathered in the hopes that they might be the first ones into the bubbling water. Can you imagine that scene? Picture that for a moment. All these sick, desperate people just waiting at the water's edge for something to happen. You know, I I got to thinking, and this might be appropriate for you kids in here, how many of you kids have played the game Red Light, Green Light? <clears throat> Raise your hands. Patrick Whipple, you are not a kid. You might act like a kid, but you are not a kid. So keep your hand down. How many kids have, let me see them. Raise, raise a high. Red Light, Green Light. Who likes Red Light, Green Light? Okay, now the rest of you, who, have, who has played Red Light, Green Light in here? Does every, all right, let me ask you this way. Put your hands down. Who does not know what red light, green light is? Don't be ashamed. Is there, okay, there are a few of you. Okay, red light, green light is a simple game you play. I've seen it played here in the worship center. 
You'll have, you'll have one person at this end with their back to this wall, and you'll have all the contestants lined up against the wall. And when they say green light, that's the cue for everyone to start their sprint across the room to try to get to the other side first. But if they say red light and turn around, and they see someone moving, what happens? you got to go to the back of the line, start all over. And so they turn around and say green light, and everyone runs, red light. Now, you kids who have played red light, green light, what is your posture when you're at red light waiting for green light? Are you just kind of like sitting around like, hmm, 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 hmm. No. Jaden, what are you like? You're ready to go, aren't you? Yeah. Colton, you're ready to go, aren't you? You're like just ready to go. You're shaking with the anticipation. You just can't wait to go when it goes green. I've seen, by the way, I've seen kids play red light, green light. It is a carnal, carnal game. Because those kids are so accusatory. I saw so move. I saw them. No. Or if they get called back, and they turn around and get back like, how dare I get in trouble because I broke the rule. It's amazing how these fun games bring out the absolute worst in our children. But you know the posture. It's that just waiting, waiting. And I almost wonder if it's something like that going on at Bethesda. Maybe you've seen movies of you know, on TV that depict the scene. It's a lot of people just kind of like, they're almost like lounging around the pool, like at a resort somewhere in Cancun or something. No, these are, this is a mass of misery and desperation. And when that water begins to move, they're so convinced that that's the only the only way they're ever going to get past what's going on, I bet it's like a great big cannonball when that water starts to move. People are green light. Who's in first? And they're probably all accusing one another. You got, you got in before it started. You got in my way. You, and you see, the, I just wonder if it's just this mass of misery, this mass of carnality, this hocus pocus superstition that has got people all confused and looking for answers in all the wrong places. And it's into the middle of that that Jesus shows up. And the first thing that really stands out to me, that screams at me off the page, is there in verse 6. Look at verse 6 again. In fact, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6 because I want the full context. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. I wonder if he'd been lying there for 38 years. We don't know for sure how long he's been there. We just know how long he's been sick. Could you imagine Waiting around for green light for four decades? How desperate. I almost wonder, at this point, how hopeless. I've never been able to get in first. I've got no one here that can help me out. I'm just going to, I don't know what I'm going to do. I got no, there's nothing else I can do. Absolute Desperation. One of the men had been lying there, had been sick for 38 years. Here's what the first thing that jumps off the page to me. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him and knew that he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, would you like to get well? You know, in the previous sign accounts that we've looked at so far, back in 2 and 4, Jesus was approached by somebody. Jesus shows up at Cana. Who, who approaches him? His mother. Jesus, Jesus, their water, or the wine has run out. Do something. Then again, last, last week, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus arrives in Galilee, and the royal official from Capernaum, he's 
20 miles away. He hears Jesus back. He comes to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, my son has a fever and he's dying. And do something about Jesus. But here, Jesus sees him first. Jesus approaches him first. There's something about that church that, that demands attention. There's, Jesus doesn't just do anything accidentally or coincidentally. He doesn't just do something on a whim. There's always focus and intentionality and purpose behind everything Jesus does. And here Jesus shows up, and in this massive misery, he spots one guy. And he goes to him. He, he's drawn to him. And it makes me wonder, why him? Why this guy? You might be thinking, well, he'd been sick the longest. You don't know that. We knew he'd been sick a long time. You don't know how, who, who had been sick longer than the other. You don't know how bad his sickness was compared to anybody else. You can't base your, your answer on that. Why this guy? Did Jesus not pity the countless others there with issues? Is he only moved with compassion for just certain individuals? All these sick desperate people. Could Jesus with a single word not have just healed them all? Do you believe? If Jesus can heal one, can he not heal them all? Of course he can heal them all. This isn't some sort of fiction that is made up by someone with a great imagination that has these arbitrary limits on the power or magic that one person has versus another. No, if Jesus is God in the flesh and he can heal one, he can heal them all. So why didn't he? Why one? Why him? Well, as we're trying to figure out the answer to that, there's a couple things we have to be careful about. Number one, that we don't confuse him with others in similar situations. You might be thinking about the blind man in John chapter 9, which we will come to here in about three weeks. We'll be in that passage in three weeks. You remember the, the blind man in John chapter 9, Jesus makes the mud and he puts it on his eyes and says, go wash in, in Siloam. And he goes and he washes and he can see. And then, and then what happens after that? Well, his friends make him go tell the Pharisees, which he does. And when he's talking with the Pharisees or the religious authorities and they're challenging him, he's proclaiming the name of Jesus and he's talking back to them. He's kind of getting snarky with them. I love it. It's one of my favorite passages in John. We're going to have fun with it here in three weeks. Um, and then later he goes out and he worships Jesus. He, he expresses faith in Jesus as the Son of Man. He's even expelled from the, from, the, from the temple, from the synagogue. So don't confuse the man here in chapter 5 with that man later in chapter 9. Also, don't conflate him with the, with the, the guy in Acts chapter 3 when Peter and John are going into the temple and he's healed, then he does what? He, he goes with them into the temple and he's praising and he's shouting and he's, he's singing and he's celebrating. No, don't confuse this guy with that guy either. This guy is really on the opposite end of the spectrum from both of them, isn't he? He doesn't seek to confess Jesus at all. In fact, when, he, when the, the Pharisees object, his first response is to throw Jesus under the bus. Hey, he told me to pick up the mat. Because <laughs> they say, you can't carry the mat on a Sabbath. And he's standing there caught, you know, red-handed. He, he made me do it. There's that carnality. It's kind of like red light, green light. He pushed me. He nudged me. Whatever. And then, of course, in verse 13, he doesn't even remember Jesus' name. 
He's, he's too dull to even take the time to figure out who the, what the, who the identity of this person was. He just says, the, that guy that healed me, the, he told me to do this. I, you know, he's, it's like he's totally trying to deflect any kind of the responsibility of this off himself in a bad way. It's not like those of you who God has come into your life and he's done some great thing and you can't, you can't deflect attention off yourself enough because it's not about you. It's about what God has done in your life. You want him to receive the glory. Here, no, he's deflecting all attention off himself because he doesn't want to be in trouble with the people that he looked up to or the people that had authority. It's a very selfish, self-centered, kind of carnal way of looking at things. Verse 15, once he finally does get the name of Jesus, what does he do? He goes and tattles on him. He tattles on Jesus. And I think in light of the evidence in our text here, this, this is not the blind man in John 9. This is not the, the cripple in Acts 3. No, this, this is more like a, a bitter old man who thinks he's answering a stupid question. Would you like to get well? Pfft. Believe this guy. Obviously. Are you the only person here that can't see what's going on? 40 years would I like to get well. And like a petulant child sent back to the end of the back of the group in red light, green light, (laughs) he responds to what he thought Jesus said, but it's not what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, can you get well? He said, do you want to get well? I think the man misses Jesus' question entirely because I think ultimately his question is not about his physical problem. Well, how do you know that, Pastor Sean? Well, we know that from verse 14. When Jesus approaches him a second time, don't miss that little nugget of information there. It's not that Jesus approached him the first time and did this great thing for him and then wandered off into the crowd and then the man went later and found Jesus and then got his name. No, Jesus came back to him. Jesus wasn't done with him. Yes, he had done a work in his life. It was freely of, of, his, of his own initiative and his grace and his mercy, whatever you want to call it, but he wasn't through because Jesus cared more about the man than just his physical problem. I think Jesus singles this guy out because he perceives the deeper issue of sin in his life beneath the surface. And while we, we, we are very cautious to say that, that a physical sickness does not necessarily mean there's some sort of sin behind it. Because there's many of you in here whose hearts are pure, you're, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're walking you know, upright in righteousness before God, but you're struggling with a lot of physical stuff, and I would never dare tell you something as, as insidious as your physical problem is because something wrong with your heart. This isn't some sort of prosperity nonsense here. No, there's, there's sin in the world, the world is broken, and even people who have been redeemed by God and are filled with God himself will still suffer and struggle, and you may not even ever know why this side of heaven. But, it sounds to me like in this particular case, it is very possible that the very thing that caused this man his problem for 38 years was in fact due to an underlying problem of sin in his life. 
And that's why, at least on the surface, the question, do you want to be well, sort of rings a bell now, doesn't it? Apparently you don't want to be well because whatever's going on in your life is causing this and you just keep going through the same thing. You won't change. The problem in the man's life is not his physical problem that he's too slow to get to the water or he's too weak, no one's around to carry him, he doesn't have any friends. The problem in his life is beneath the surface in his heart. And Jesus' warning to him is is an indicator to us of what the concern is on Jesus' mind. Stop sinning. You think this is bad? You just wait. You just wait and see where sin ultimately takes you in, in life, in afterlife. You just wait. The future in store for those whose hearts are remain untouched by my grace is very grim indeed. And, and unless you were one, if you were wondering what the biblical view is of the afterlife for those who don't come to Jesus, I can tell you it is eternal and it is miserable. Far worse than anything you could experience in this life. And I wonder if maybe Jesus singles him out because he perceives not just the physical problem. Hey, they all had physical problems. Jesus sees beneath the surface. He sees the real problem. And in this passage, in this sign, we see the first layer of Jesus' intentions exposed. He's not just here to provide relief from physical suffering. Jesus has come to provide salvation from sin. Not just to make people's bodies well, but to make their hearts right. The heart, you see, is always the chief concern of God. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about the other things in your life. It just means that is what matters to him most. Your heart, the status of of the inside of you. Everyone wants the physical healing. Everyone wants the miracle. Everyone wants the blessing. Everyone has the litany, the list of things they want God to come and do for them. But how many people want Jesus? How many people want Jesus? Listen, Jesus can come and and arbitrarily heal this guy's body. The guy didn't ask for it. The guy didn't request it. He he doesn't even know who Jesus is. And frankly, he, he... he kind of doesn't seem to care who Jesus is. He's only, he only wants to know Jesus so far as he can deflect any you know, blame off himself and put it back on Jesus. Jesus can heal anybody at any time in any way he wants, but he can only heal the heart that is willing to be healed. He's not going to come and make your heart right apart from your permission. That's why he didn't just show up and snap his fingers and everybody was made well because he's not there for that. Yes, he does do that at times, but it's always with the deeper need in mind. When Jesus comes to your life, yes, you can be sure that he cares about your needs. He cares about your cancers. He cares about your grief. He cares about your finances. Thank you, Carl. For your prayer. He cares about fill in the blank. The things that are on your mind. Kids, all of you have, it may be 
kid-level fears or kid-level worries, but, but Jesus cares about him just as much as the, the teenager fears and worries or the adult fears and worries. He cares about all of our lives. He cares about everything on our minds and hearts. But listen, he's not just concerned with the things that we're concerned about. He's concerned about the deeper things. He's laser-focused on what is beneath the surface, things that oftentimes you and I'd miss And we need him to come and expose those things to us. I wonder what the man was like after his second encounter with Jesus. We know that he went and told on him, but I just, I just, I hope and pray that something about this interaction planted a seed in his heart and it took time to really reflect on Jesus' words, not just on what Jesus did, but on what Jesus said. Maybe there does need to be a radical transformation in my heart. That's what Jesus is focused on. And when he comes, he's going to ask, are you willing to let me do the deeper work? I'm going to show it to you. And then I'm going to ask you to give me permission to touch your heart, not just your body or anything else that's on your mind. Now, I think there's actually a second and perhaps more important reason why Jesus picked this guy out of the crowd. Not that it in any way renders this first thing or all these things we've been saying at this point as invalid. But I wonder if knowing the man's heart, we know back in chapter 2 that Jesus knew people's hearts. He is, after all, God in the flesh. And and whether it was his sort of innate being as God in the flesh or if it was just his intimate communion with the Father and the, the filling of the Spirit, somehow Jesus, he doesn't know everything. He has limited himself in his incarnation, but he knows enough about people and he knows people's hearts. He has some sort of supernatural intuition into the people's lives. And I wonder if as Jesus approached this man, knowing his heart, Jesus knew what his response would be to the inevitable reaction of the Jewish leaders who saw what had happened and, as we're told there in verse 10, objected to it. I wonder if Jesus knew that. How will this guy respond when the, when the leaders inevitably object to what has happened here? It's not so much the healing at verse 10 that they're objecting to, is it? Now, they, they do object to it, but the point in verse 10 is not the healing. It's that the man is carrying the mat, breaking the rules. That's what they're objecting to in verse 10. According to their interpretation of the prohibition against Sabbath work in Exodus 31, it is unlawful to carry an item from one location to another on the Sabbath, according to their interpretation. They're they're sort of made-up rules to explain what the Bible is saying. Not the Bible, but what they say the Bible said. That's the rule that the, the man is breaking. He's carrying his mat when he's not supposed to, and it never ceases to amaze me the difference between Jesus and religious people. Because Jesus, remember we said, he's lays their focus on the heart. He cares about what's beneath the surface. What are they concerned about? Their rules. That's all they care about. That's all they care about. Never mind a miracle has happened. Forty years of sickness gone in a word. Does that not do anything to you guys? Nope, he's carrying a mat. It's one thing for someone to break the rules. But Jesus was doing more than that. He was telling others to break the rules. That's even worse, isn't it? I'm sure they didn't care too much about a single kind of nobody carrying a mat around. Yeah, bad bad on you. Go do what makes this right and stop doing it. But no, here they have someone who's already come and cleansed the temple. They're already conspiring to kill him. And now he's telling people to do this. That's all they care about. Their rules, their rules, and someone telling people to break their rules. 
But I believe that it is this collision course initiated by Jesus himself when he approached this man at the start of the story. It is this collision course with the authorities here in, in the story that is at the heart of why Jesus healed this man at this location on this Sabbath day at this holy occasion. Jesus knows that this guy is going to rat him out. Interesting, isn't it? Look again at verses 13 through 15. The man didn't know who Jesus was, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, now you are made well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Verse 15, then the man went and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had healed him. Do you think he was witnessing to the glorious mercy of Jesus? No, I think we've already, I think, rightly established that this is him trying to avoid getting in trouble himself. He's ratting Jesus out. He's telling on Jesus. He's trying to save face with the authorities, but even in the midst of that, oh, Jesus has something more in mind for his life. I hope that's a little bit of hope for some of you today as you look at the, the mess that your life might be or all the ways that you've missed the mark or messed things up, that even then, God has great plans for you. And he's doing something in your life that has significance. Jesus is using this man to present himself healed, to testify to Jesus' power, to proclaim Jesus' name to the very ones who need to hear it the most. Remember Samaria. How, how did the, the response in Samaria come about? It was not on the basis of a miracle. It was on the basis of what? A woman's testimony. A woman who had met Jesus face to face and had gone back and told everyone about him. It was on account of that that they came to believe. It was not with the eyes, but with the ear. And that's what Jesus, Jesus desires, even if the dull grumblings of a crotchety old man are all he has to work with in the entire city of Jerusalem. And that's because the key to the heart is not the eye, but the ear. That's, that's how you get to the heart of man. Testimony. Ears hearing testimony. And that's what Jesus was looking for here. And friends, that's what Jesus is looking for today. Men, women, boys, girls who have met Jesus face to face and will go into the world and tell people what they've seen, what he's done, the good news of who he is. That's what he's after. And he'll use anyone and anything to accomplish that. Even someone as dull and grouchy as perhaps you or I are. Because it's the response to his testimony that gives occasion to the revelation of who Jesus is. Did you see that in the text? Where the conversation ultimately landed? It's the end result of the whole, it's the end game for Jesus here. The healing, the approach, the second approach, the conversation, this man at this time, it was all for this purpose. Verses 16 through 18, the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the rules, but Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. In case the reader didn't understand the significance of that, John tells us he not only broke the Sabbath by calling, uh, he called God his father. 
And you only do that if you're claiming equality with God himself. That's the end game for Jesus. His response to them beginning to harass him there in verse 17 is not to squabble with them over the rules. His response is to reveal his identity. That's his goal. For you to see me as I am, for you to to hear and witness with your own eyes and hear with your own ears, and I pray to receive me. Do you want to be healed? I, I am who I am. Will you re- let me come and go beneath the service and touch your heart? Not just the superficial things on, on top, the things that you think are a big deal, which they may be a big deal, but compared to the things of the heart, they're small potatoes. Will you let me come and work there to be who I am there? God is always working, even on the Sabbath. That was not a point of disagreement between the rabbis and Jesus. They knew that God providentially is overseeing his creation. He sustains his creation. But Jesus' response was saying, whatever factors that justify God's working on the Sabbath, justify mine. In other words, you know, what applies to him applies to me. That's a shocking claim of equality with God. He's not saying that he's another God. equal. He's not claiming some sort of like, you know, polytheism, that there's, you have your God, and then I'm another God, you know, and there's other gods maybe out there. That's not what Jesus is claiming here. Jesus is claiming to be one with God as his eternal son. Everything that John has already said in his prologue. Jesus is affirming that. He's not claiming to be one of many avenues to the divine, just one option among many. No, he's claiming to be the one and only son of the Father. He alone is the one who makes the true God known. He's the one alone through whom you have access to the one true God. That's what he's saying here. In other words, it's not your rules, guys, that, that gives you access to God. It is me. It is I. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. And I've, I'm here in the flesh showing you signs with, so your eyes can, can see what your ears need to hear. Who I am, what I've come to do. That's what the signs all point to. And if you miss it, you miss Jesus. Not just in the words of the Scriptures, but in your life. If you miss What the signs point to, you miss Jesus. And let me tell you something. There's a 100% track record of everyone who ever missed Jesus ended up opposing Jesus if they persisted in missing him. You miss him, you will oppose him every time. As verse 18 tragically ends, so the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. Don't miss Jesus today, I beg you. Don't miss him. Don't get so wrapped up in your own ideas about God or your own sort of avenues for salvation or, or relief from suffering, your, your own little superstitions or, or you know, sort of folklore. Don't, don't rely on any of those things. Don't miss him in the midst of it. Jesus came right into the middle of it here. All these miserable people waiting for water to bubble. As if that is their only hope in this world. Jesus says, I've got, I offer you more hope than that, guys. And John uses water again and again and again to reinforce his point. Back in chapter 2, the, the water of the ceremonial pots can never be sufficient to provide the new wine of the kingdom. Only Jesus does that. 
with the Samaritan woman there. In chapter 4, the water from Jacob's well can never satisfy the ultimate thirst of people. Only Jesus can do that. And here in chapter 5, the waters of superstition have no power to heal. They have no power to transform. Only Jesus can, the one who upholds all of creation by the power of his word. For in the beginning, he himself was with God, and he himself was God. Only Jesus can touch and heal the real issues at the heart of every human person. He's greater than any any human malady. He's greater than any superstition. He's superior to any religious folklore. He's superior to any of our foolish substitutes for faith in God. And he alone can suffice. He alone can satisfy. He alone quenches and transforms. Only he has the power to save. Don't miss Jesus this morning. Even in your hardship, even in your suffering, even in your stinking stubbornness and rebellion and sin. He wants you to trust his word. His word is true. That little note at the beginning of the, of the sermon was not just some sort of academic thing for trivia's sake. So you can go home and win Bible trivia, trivial pursuit with your spouse or to, or to impress you with my seminary knowledge. I want you to trust his word. And even when you come across a passage that's confusing because a verse is missing, I don't want that to undermine your trust in his word. He's made himself known. It is true. It has power. It alone makes you wise unto salvation by trusting in the name of Jesus. And he is at work in your life. Whether you're aware of it or not, whether you understand it or not, whether or not you're on board with it. Like the man here, who seems to just be sort of a a reluctant backseat, you know, occupant of what Jesus is trying to do. He never stops working. and He will use whatever and whoever he can to bring glory to himself, not because he's some vain, egotistical person. He will never stop using you to bring glory to himself however he can, because as John's gospel attests, it is the glorification of Jesus that alone results in the salvation of the world. What is glory in John? It is Jesus on a cross. The most healing and the most revealing thing he ever did. Is your heart a mess today? Come to the cross. And the one who conjoined his divine nature with our rotten, fallen, sinful nature, he was not His nature was not hurt or twisted or perverted. No, ours was healed and redeemed. And you can find healing at the level of the heart by the one on the cross. And if you want to know who that one is, you look to him on the cross because there's not a more vivid depiction of the self-giving, holy love, the glory of God himself, than the one of Jesus on the cross. Healing and revealing. He wants to use your life and your testimony as a sign that points to him and his power to save to the uttermost. Will you let him do that today? Will you choose not to miss Jesus? Are you willing to be healed? And will you allow your life to be used for his purposes and glory in the world? I know that's your heart. Let's let's pray that these things take place in our lives. Lord, you know every heart in here. You know the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. 
even better than we know our own hearts. Lord, our own hearts are deceitful and wicked, and, and they're so quick to, to, to cause us to be confused. And we live in, in all sorts of darkness, but Lord, you, you see right through it. You get right to the heart of things. And you, you come into our lives to expose what's there. Not to, to judge, but to convict and to convince and to enable us to respond to what we hear you saying, Lord, I know there's someone in here right now or someone tuned in online who, who you've been speaking loudly to throughout this message. That you see the sin lurking beneath the surface. They may, have, they may keep a perfect face for everyone else in their lives, but you see beneath. You see what's in there. And you're telling to them, stop sinning. It's not a, an angry accusation. It is a, a desperate, loving plea. Stop sinning or something worse is coming into your future. You hear us saying that, but oftentimes we're so scared to respond. Lord, would you, would you help us to overcome our fear, to overcome our doubt, to overcome our stubbornness, and allow you to do the work that only you can do, the one who turns water into wine, the one who tells the, the sick and the blind and the lame to get up to rise, to see the one who has power over nature, the one who has power over supernature. Lord, help us to have faith in you today, to do what only you can do, that we could then be the most useful tools possible whereby you make yourself known to the world. Lord, use me, use us, use this church to bring glory to your name because every time you are glorified, it results in the salvation of another. Lord, help us to respond as you lead in the moments to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.